Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's beginning to look a lot like Festivus. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, this is Robert M. Price, host of The Bible Geek, and with an announcement that you may already have seen on Facebook or uh, possibly the front page of the New York Times or whatever, uh, and that is the debut of my book, Holy Fable, Volume 2, The Gospels and Acts Undistorted by Faith. And I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and uh, it's it's available now. So they tell me. And uh, this took a little bit longer than I had anticipated. And uh, one reason for this is that... Um, team geek here uh, in uh, Selma, North Carolina. We we uh, have a little trouble concentrating completely on this, mainly because my amazing wife, Carol, has been a bus driver and a teacher at uh, the nearby Sel Selma Elementary School, and uh, there's so much preparation outside of class time, and she has so little time left over in the day that it's miraculous she can get around to doing the tech stuff for uh, putting mind vendor books together and uh, getting Zarathustra Speaks together every month and various other things. And of course, this is, uh, I suppose, the big reason I'm on Patreon because um, the stuff I want to do and that we want to do would uh, certainly get done faster if uh, both of us were able to devote all of our time to it instead of uh, Carol driving the bus for elementary, middle, and high school students every day, getting up at 4 a.m. I'm not even sure that such a time exists. It's so difficult to imagine. And uh, then uh, keeping a lid on the uh, cauldron of... Uh, ill-trained kiddies at school and so forth, and we're, we're hoping we can eventually, as soon as possible, uh, come up with the, uh, the bucks to uh, just do this, to concentrate on our projects, one of which, by the way, I'm not sure I ever mentioned uh, to you. I might have, but, you know, who knows with my memory. Uh, every Saturday morning, uh, Carol and I lie around in bed and discuss various things, and uh, often I get ideas for Zarathustra Speaks columns from these discussions, and it's very interesting, and it occurred to Carol, uh, she's really the brains of the outfit, that it would be fun to record these uh, meandering conversations about interesting stuff and to uh, make it available as yet another podcast called Bedheads. 
and uh, I think you'd really enjoy this so the, because the the level of the discussion I think is pretty high and it's spontaneous and uh, uh, very entertaining. It would give you a little glimpse of our Ozzy and Harriet-like existence with the uh, my dinner with Andre element thrown in. So uh, there are various things we're we're working on, and uh, we'd need to get the equipment and all that stuff. So uh, anyway. Uh, with that, let me get into some questions, and I want to start with one from Evan Hubbard. Evan is the one that sent in that long and fascinating question that uh, was lost, the answer to which was lost uh, when that uh, recent Bible Geek uh, um, episode vanished off the earth somehow. And uh, I... Uh, and then I lost the question itself because, as you know, I just summarized the questions for the listing so you know what's what to look for in a particular episode. I couldn't find the email, and I uh, didn't remember the name of him who asked it, so I put out an appeal here last uh, episode as well as on Facebook, asking whoever it was to send the thing in again, and Evan did. So here we go. Let me start take another uh, swipe at this. He says, I am a lifelong atheist who has always been fascinated by religion. I've recently been trying to figure out where this fascination comes from and what it is about studying religion that I find valuable. This is a brief rundown of some of my thoughts on the matter. I interpret talk of gods and mythical stories as attempts to describe the human encounter with that aspect of the world that is not just unknown but inherently mysterious. The aspect uh, the aspect uh, that va variously goes by the name of the transcendent, the numinous, the ineffable, the ineffable, the sacred, take your pick. Though these terms might seem vague, I believe they describe something real, or at least they describe a real experience that human beings are capable of having. I'm going to put on the brake several times here and, and comment uh, so I don't forget everything. Yeah, uh, this is, uh, uh, you're taking a kind of phenomenological approach to it, as Mircea Eliade and various other scholars have, like bracketing the issue of whether there really is something out there that corresponds uh, to the holy, etc. And uh, Rudolf Otto did a great, great job, and I'll get to him in a second, um, talking about this experience uh, and uh, he thought the experience pretty much proved there must be something that uh, people were experiencing. I'm not so sure that is true, but you're making the distinction that I would also make. Uh, you're talking about a real experience uh, whatever else may be going on. And the big question is, is that experience a wholesome thing? Uh, so, you know, that's uh, that's one important distinction which you are drawing. These various uh, names for it, uh, they are developed by different scholars. Uh, the transcendent, uh, Bultmann speaks about that. He says the problem with mythology is that it... Uh, it uh, by uh, in trying to talk about the transcendent, it uh, must use symbolic or 
picture language because the transcendent is not the kind of thing, but it's not a thing that could be described. So uh, myth speaks of God as being located spatially far above us when the real point is that uh, God, whatever God is, it transcends us, a higher order of being, whatever that means. And again, you see, it's, it's vague. It's uh, not susceptible to being labeled and defined. Uh, he says the problem with myth is that it objectifies the transcendence as if um, it, rather than underlying everything, it uh, it is one entity among others in the, interrupting the chain of cause and effect, a god appearing at Abraham's campfire and stuff like that. Uh, then um, you uh, mentioned the, the numinous. Of course, that's Rudolf Otto's term for that uh, two-sided experience of holy terror, the mysterious, the mysterium tremendum on the one hand, and the mysterium fascinans on the other. I always like to compare that to uh, real scary horror films. Uh, it's uh, so out of this world. It's fascinating. But it is, since it's so strange and uh, threatening, uh, it's also frightening. And so you find yourself there putting your fingers over your eyes. Oh my gosh, I don't think I can stand seeing this. But then you start peeking through the fingers because you got to know. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's the core experience of religion, Otto said. Uh, Numinous is taken from a Latin word, numen, meaning a kind of uh, holy object of some kind. And so he decided to coin the term numinous, uh, the overpowering uh, uh, capital H, holy, that is wholly other, uh, which is why it's so shocking and yet fascinating. Uh, the ineffable. Um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great Jewish mystic, would speak of the ineffable. And uh, that uh, I remember that even when I was an evangelical, I read that his book, Man is Not Alone, and thought this guy, even though I am on my rules, isn't supposed to be having genuine <clears throat> spiritual experiences, he obviously is. The sacred, well, that's uh, Merchie Eliade. He, he talks about how so much uh, of human culture is based on uh, fundamental beliefs held cross-culturally about the sacred, the realm of being, uh, and the profane, plain old space and time, which is valorized and given meaning by um, the and shape even uh, uh, cosmos made out of chaos by uh, the sacred interpenetrating it and so forth. Uh, so, you know, all these these words you mentioned are quite proper for the discussion and have slightly different uh, implications because they're dealing with slightly different aspects of the experience. Okay, uh, back to Evan. They are manifested when we have the realization that we know the world only through the mediation of our senses, 
and thus never really have direct contact with the world as it is, but only as it is presented to us as changeable and impermanent qualities. They are manifested in the sense of alienation we have from the natural world in which we recognize our continuity with nature and other animals, but also our profound separation from it as well. And they are manifested in the recognition of the arbitrary nature of our existence, in which we find ourselves randomly placed into a particular time and place, with particular physical capacities and limitations imposed on us, with particular innate needs and desires, and we are forced to survive and find meaning and fulfillment as best we can, with no explanation given for this predicament, and no rule book to consult for answers. Yeah, that's right, the throneness that Heidegger speaks about. Every human being coming to consciousness is uh, got a huge agenda of questions, uh, and uh, we, we don't know what why we uh, are here, uh, where we came from, uh, what the point of our existence is. Uh, we take an inventory of what we are, what we can do, what our options are. None of this was our creation. It's all contingent. Well, contingent on what? Uh, contingent on circumstances, uh, the accidents of your genetic makeup and your, the environment you were born into. You, you didn't choose any of these things. Uh, this, this is just the hand you're dealt. Well, uh, Schleiermacher said that, uh, that the, uh, this recognition of this and um, the, the contingency uh, and therefore the receptivity of human existence defines what piety is. Uh, he liked to think of it, he had various striking definitions for religion. He said, it's, on the one hand, it's the sense and taste for the ultimate, or the infinite, I guess he said, what's the difference though? He said it is uh, God consciousness, and he was sort of a Spinozist, kind of implicitly a pantheist, uh, and uh, that, uh, and and for our purpose here, the most important one is receptivity. That is the feeling, the awareness of absolute dependence. Because, you know, your life is dependent or contingent on a lot of things in every moment. Uh, my house, where I'm sitting now, uh, is over 100 years old, and uh, it uh, needs repairs and so forth. Well, my continued existence beyond today is contingent on this old structure not falling in on me right now, and so on and so on. It's contingent on there not being a disease outbreak, an earthquake, uh, all sorts of things. Am I not eating poisoned food accidentally and so forth? I mean, a, a lot of things that will sooner or later combine to kill a lot of people. Well, you know, I can't fend them off forever. I can't really fend them off at all, really. And so um, it, it's such a, uh, a crapshoot. It's, it's uh, so contingent. 
so what do we need and what do we find? Well, we, we are absolutely, we're relatively dependent upon all of these factors, but we're absolutely dependent on the whole, on the totality of being, the big picture, which in a kind of quasi-pantheistic way, Schleiermacher identified with God. Uh, and so uh, this, now everybody is in fact dependent upon the totality of being the divine, uh, but not everybody is aware of it. Uh, I think I love the poem Invictus, but I have to admit it's just the opposite of, of what Schleiermacher is discussing, that it's kind of an illusion to think that you're the master of your fate. Uh, and, uh, and piety is gratitude and receptivity. In Islam, they say that, uh, in, well, this is, I don't know if this is true anymore, but historically they would prefer to speak of um, the irreligious person not so much as an unbeliever as an ingrate that, uh, you know, you're dependent on Allah, which just means God, uh, for, for everything, and, and yet you don't uh, recognize it. You, you're not grateful. You're smug uh, in the, the foolish notion that you're in control, which you could never be as a finite contingent being. But the religious person, the pious person, is aware of this contingency and is uh, gratefully dependent uh, gratefully receptive in every moment, uh, and therefore thanking God. Though, of course, you can see Schleiermacher is kind of defining it in an abstract way, though he clothes it in uh, the language of the Bible in Christianity. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we uh, our contingency implies we're contingent relatively on worldly events and conditions, uh, but absolutely on the, the whole of it. Okay, back to Evan, sorry. The transcendent, for want of a better word, represents the human mind butting up against these mysteries and being reduced to an awed silence. Giving it a label is not to give an answer to the mystery, for there may not necessarily be an answer. But that the mystery itself exists is undeniable, even if you don't think it is interesting or important. And religious-slash-mythological ideas are attempts to articulate and think about the transcendent in this sense. Well, here my, uh, uh, my other favorite theologian, Paul Tillich, talks about this. He, he goes along with Otto and, and all these guys uh, in the same ballpark. And uh, he says that, um, uh, that all religious language is symbolic as it must be because you cannot grasp the ultimate, uh, which, uh, you know, again, you're, you're uh, dependent uh, on... And uh, he says that the great mystery of being is uh, the the thing one uh, stands in awe of. That is the numinous, and um, uh, that uh, it, it's not the it's not a. Uh, you don't what religion offers is not an answer to a puzzle, a solution. Now many people think it is, but Tillich says that that is a kind of popular, dumbed-down distortion of it. 
uh, the intellectualistic distortion of faith, he calls it, where you think, I sure would like to know uh, how the heck the world got here. And it's not something you should take for granted. I uh, sure would like to know what happens after we die. I mean, there must be some answer to that. How can we find out? Those are all interesting questions, but they're not really religious questions at all. Uh, and if you think they are, that explains the uh, the dogmatism of fundamentalisms and their attachment to outdated, um, I don't want to say pseudoscientific, but uh, proto-scientific stuff like the world was made in seven days, or the world was made by God killing a dragon, or Marduk killing a dragon, uh, and it all happened just a few thousand years ago, and so on and so on. And the evolution didn't happen because it says he made everything according to its kind and all that. That is seeing religion as and the Bible as an answer book to, to interesting questions uh, and uh, perhaps questions we could never answer by research or observation. Uh, but lucky for us, uh, God has revealed them. That's, that's not what faith is. Faith, properly speaking, is the ultimate concern. Whatever it, your Whatever you're living for, whatever is of ultimate importance to you, is your ultimate concern, and therefore your faith is in it. Now, it might be faith in an idol. Uh, if you're living your whole life for a, a particular political party or sports team or rock group, or whatever, is that really what your life ought to be about? Uh, I mean, you know, nothing wrong with any of that stuff, but is that really the big thing? Uh, so, uh, uh, what is the mystery of faith? Great is the mystery of our religion, Titus says. I think it's Titus. Uh, it, well, it, it's the mystery of being itself, which we symbolize under words like God and uh, Brahma and so forth, uh, the infinite, the absolute. Uh, you can't really describe it. This is central to Zen Buddhism also, right? Don't think your words about the divine are describing it. They may not, they may not even be conveying it. They may be a substitute for it, just as Tillich says that all symbolic language uh, is meant to, uh, about religion, myths and so forth, are meant to pass you on to the ultimate, to enable you to participate in it. But if you think those things are the ultimate, you're, you're, uh, you're going to become an idolater. What does Jesus say in John chapter 12? Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And that's a fascinating way to put it. He doesn't say, whoever believes in me is kidding himself. Uh, that's a mistake. I'm only here as a guide. He doesn't say that. He says, you believe in me? Okay, how are you doing that? What's the right way to do that? Uh, well, uh, I'm a conduit so that you may go beyond me to him who sent me. That's the, the point. It's just like the Zen uh, anecdote or fable or whatever, where this guy asks someone, uh, I, I hear all this talk about the moon. Uh, what the heck is the moon? Where is it? Can you, can you, uh, direct me to it? And, and the <laughs> happens a full moon is out that very night. So the person he asks simply points up to it. Now, suppose the, um, the questioner said, Oh, the moon is your hand. 
Uh, that's like a lot of the Jesus parables, purposely stupid, right? Um, nobody would be that stupid. And then it makes you think, oh, oh, well, maybe I am that stupid because I take these doctrines and rituals and relics as that which I ought to worship. It's they're not. Uh, and that's why Zen is indifferent to such things and says if uh, the doctrines and all that stuff, the scriptures work to get you to the other side, to enlightenment, well, good. But if they don't, forget it and, and just try some other alternative uh, approach like the koans and all that. So, okay, um, they, uh, the religious language points to the mystery. And what is revealed, rightly uh, defined, the mystery does not cease to be mysterious. Rather, it's exposure to the mystery as the mystery that is fulfilling in the way the religious experience is. It seeks, as Rudolf Otto said, it's, it is finite. It knows its finitude, uh, which is why the worshiper says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Uh, but but you, you stay tuned. You stay plugged in because the very thing that reveals to you your pitiful nothingness in the same moment offers the fullness of being that uh, that gives you meaning, purpose, and even reality. So uh, it, uh, it exposes your poverty in order to make you rich. And um, so, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the mystery as mystery is the, the healing and challenging uh, whatever, right? Can't define it if it's infinite, right? That's not a pun, right? The point of defining is to pinpoint what you're talking about by uh, isolating it from what else that it's not, all right. Oh, don't mean this. Don't mean that. No, uh, by uh, a carrot, this is what I mean. This particular kind of vegetable with this shape, this color, Bugs Bunny likes them, etc. Uh, you're defining it by its limits, what it isn't. And uh, the same thing with um, the holy, the God, whatever you want to call it. If you think you can define it, like in a theology textbook, you're just making an idol for yourself. How, granted, the human mind could never comprehend the greatness of the infinite, by definition, because if you could, you could uh, pare it down. Uh, but you would only be doing what Isaiah mocks about the idolater who goes into the forest, cuts down a tree trunk, strips the bark and the branches off it, carves it, gilds it with metal, sets it up, and worships it. Uh, it would just be a fancy-looking idol. Uh, it is a mystery. This is why Eastern Orthodox Christians say uh, that they they have a negative theology, or and uh, I guess Catholic mystics speak of the via negativity, the way of negation. Uh, you can't possibly understand what God is. But it, it is possible to disabuse yourself of false, inadequate notions of God. And that's what the Trinity is, the, the dual natures of Christ. Nobody pretends those are understandable descriptions of God. Uh, no, uh, that's the, the, the theologians didn't have the 
hubris to think that they understood God in these ways. The point is, we want to safeguard the mystery of God, and these the things we do say, three persons in one nature, uh, two natures in one person, uh, these are but the edges of his ways, as Job says. Uh, and uh, that's all we can say. We can't say what lies beyond it. And when we say that tritheism or uh, monophysitism or whatever, that's the true uh, doctrine. No, no, no. You, you think you know more than you can know. You're oversimplifying it, reducing it to an idol. That's the way it is. Martin Luther said, how do we know Christ? We know him only through his benefits. That was big for Schleiermacher. We can look at what it's like for the person who is open to, to God, to the beyond. Uh, we can describe our experience of, of the holy, and we can make certain inferences about it. But he said he was an agnostic pietist. Uh, you have to admit what you can't know, which has to be uh, most of the thing in this case. Uh, so the mystery as the mystery, the mysterium tremendum. Yeah, and one last thing. Why are we stuck having to raise such questions and be frustrated at what we can't know? Well, Peter Berger talks about that. Uh, it's very unlikely that animals... Um, discuss things among themselves uh, uh, with, uh, you know, about uh, gods and origins and all of that, because they're basically operating on instincts. That's what they need to survive, and it works. But we have big brains, uh, and therefore reason tends to displace instinct, but also uh, the, the animal, by instinct, creates its own environment uh, and uh, controls its surroundings in the way that it needs to to survive. Well, us with our big brains, we need to create a cultural environment uh, uh, filled with ideas and symbols. And uh, so we have to raise these questions. Now, they might be futile uh, questions ultimately, but that is why we, uh, we think and pray and all that sort of thing. Okay, let me go back to Evan. I that's why I didn't want to lose this question. It's it's so rich the the stuff he his observations and his questions. Uh, Evan says um, I think something like this is behind the quote religious impulse unquote that seems to be a human universal throughout history. This recognition of or desire to be reconnected with the transcendent, the inescapable mystery that is the existence of the universe and the existence of us within it. Religious language is at its core an attempt to point to the transcendent aspect of reality using metaphors of gods and mythic narratives. At the same time, I realize that most of the people who actually wrote the scriptures and held these beliefs throughout history have interpreted them more literally. The gods are real. Um, albeit supernatural, people, and the myths really happened. Um, if I can just, uh, let me just pause again. Tillich uh, draws an interesting distinction. He says that there's two kinds of literalism in religion. There is um, naive literalism, 
and there is reflexive literalism. Naive literalism is the, uh, again, proto or pre-scientific belief of the ancients that the world has there's a three-story universe, you know, heaven, earth, and hell, and uh, all that sort of thing, that uh, intractable disease or epilepsy are caused by demons and spirits, uh, that um, gods visit the earth in human form and, and all this kind of thing, that a god could uh, save humanity by dying and, and all that. Uh, as Bultmann says, surely this is primitive mythology. Um, um, these people can't be blamed for thinking as they do. They weren't stupid. They used the, the reason they had, which is probably equal to ours, on on the material they had, the sense data. And uh, their, their beliefs were hypotheses, basically. This guy's having a fit over here. What the heck is happening? Well, how are they to know about the electrical impulses in the brain? So they figured, well, maybe there's some invisible creature giving them hell. Uh, that wasn't stupidity, right? That was the best they could come up with. Uh, they they couldn't know about these things. I mean, some people had glimmers of things that, by luck, turned out to be accurate, like atoms and that sort of thing, heliocentrism. A few people under, understood that. But Tillich says um, when the, when people read the Bible or the Quran or whatever today and um, believe that stuff, cognitively they're living in the same simplistic universe. They uh, tend not to know yet that modern science uh, has changed everything. Now, when they find that out, they can go one of two ways. They can uh, become more sophisticated and adjust their beliefs to these things, and that was the great challenge of liberal or modernist theology in the 19th century, is where do you stop, like uh, Karl Jaspers said in a debate with uh, Rudolf Bultmann, why don't you demythologize God? Uh, I mean, why not go the whole way? And Boltman said, well, because there are non-mythological ways of understanding God. And of course, that's the whole transcendence business. But but um, that's the danger that literalists uh, of, the, of the reflective kind are afraid of. Uh, are you going to give up everything? I mean, if, if resurrections are impossible, what happens to the whole idea of Christianity and, and so on and so on? Uh, and uh, so the the weird uh, thing of uh, Protestant rationalism in the 18th century was a great example of that, a kind of a snapshot of the, this development. Uh, well, we don't want to give up the Bible. We don't want to give up believing that the Bible stories are accurate, but... I guess there really aren't any true miracles, so uh, I guess we say all those things, the parting of the Red Sea, the appearance of Jesus after the crucifixion, these things are rationally explicable. Yeah, that's it. It seems absurd to us today, most people, uh, but you're, you're doing a, a negotiation, right? Uh, because now uh, you, you, you've discarded literalism and you're trying to figure out what's left. But the fundamentalist is unwilling to do that. And says, no, no, I don't care what science says, as Jerry Falwell once said on 
TV. I'm just sticking with the Bible. That is reflexive literalism. In a sense, you know better, but you're just going to say, don't confuse me with the facts. And um, this is what uh, Tillich says in this respect. This is pretty much a quote. Fundamentalism has demonic aspects. It it uh, suppresses the it it uh, oh it's inimical to the church the search for truth and uh, suppresses the instincts of its uh, adherents. Makes them intellectually dishonest. And uh, just look at any uh, apologist. You'll you'll see that is just blatantly obvious. Um, they already really know it's not true, and they're just trying to kid themselves. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so uh, Tillich says that uh, there's the old um, naive literalism, and then the literalism of fundamentalism, reactive literalism, is a whole different thing. Okay, uh, Evan says, but it seems a little strange to say that I, as an atheist, have understood the true meaning of religious beliefs when the people who have actually held those beliefs have interpreted them differently. I guess the way I see it is like this. There is genuinely something to which religious language refers, and that is the mystery that I'm calling the transcendent. But since we can only talk about this mystery in metaphors, it is easy for the metaphors to be given too much weight. Usually, when we use metaphors, we can easily switch between the signifier and the signified in our understanding. But the transcendent is by definition that which we cannot describe or experience directly. And so, because we have only the metaphor to hang on to, a signifier without a signified, it drifts free from its transcendent referent and becomes at least partly identified with a literal referent. Uh, the result is that there will be no consensus among people about the true meaning of these beliefs, and um, there will always be a spectrum of interpretations, from wholly literal to wholly metaphorical. I think what I'm trying to say is that I am just the, uh, the wholly metaphorical and I am just at the wholly metaphorical end of the spectrum. I think there really is an ineffable mystery inherent in our existence to which religious language refers, but that none of that language is literally true. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, oh, it's all symbolic. Well, symbolic of what? Uh, we can ask that question in a in a skeptical way, an unsympathetic way, and say, you're just equivocating. You're not talking about anything. And and sometimes I think that is true. Uh, like when people say, I don't care what happens in the world, even if the whole globe is completely depopulated, that doesn't mean that God is not in loving control of the world. Uh, what do you mean by God is in loving control of the world if it's compatible with that, the doom of all human beings? What are you saying? What is it you're claiming anymore? Uh, you're talking about God's love, uh, God's control. What does that amount to? Uh, there's no difference between that and uh, the reality if there was no God. What, what do you even mean? Yeah, th that happens sometimes. 
But uh, other times it's because whatever you're talking about, especially as a mystery, can't be defined. Uh, and so all you're doing is pointing to the mystery, not to the, it's not like uh, doing some sort of word, some sort of jumble um, uh, puzzle and you turn the page upside down to get the answer on the bottom. It doesn't work like that. You're not talking about something that can be defined or there wouldn't be any mystery to it. Uh, I wonder how many planets are in the solar system. Well, uh, there's ways to find that out. It's an intriguing question, but it's not the the mystery of being, right? And so I think sometimes there's no uh, no uh, signified because uh, you... Uh, you couldn't explain what it was, you couldn't comprehend what it was, even if there was. And of course, Derrida uh, and deconstructionists say that um, there's no transcendent, transcendental signified in any use of language. As Don Cupid says, you can't get outside of language. So what's true of, uh, quote, God, unquote, is true of anything. You have to understand that language is... A kind of uh, game. Anyway, um, Evan says, I hope that made a modicum of sense. Oh, yes, it did. More than than that. Now on to the questions. Uh, he says, do you agree that the experience of encountering the transcendent slash sacred slash numinous slash ineffable uh, or of trying to induce that encounter is the original or ultimate goal of the religious impulse? Um, I think that is the essence of it. But if we're talking about how it started, uh, I'm I'm inclined to think that uh, that uh, certain anthropologists and sociologists are right in saying that uh, the or the original belief in gods uh, was a, a a theory to try to influence events in the world, uh, and and that it was, uh, well, I guess to broaden it out, it's kind of like Clifford Geertz says in his essay, Religion as a Cultural System. He says that there are, th there are great mysteries, again, uh, problems to which we don't see an answer, and we posit that there must be one uh, that uh, is in some inaccessible realm bigger than the sensible realm, uh, the future or heaven or, or the other side of the tapestry, you know, that I, I don't see how this makes sense. And I need the world to make sense. I need there to be such a thing as justice. I need there to be such a thing as rewarding virtue and punishing wickedness. Uh, but I don't see it happening here. Is there some other place where the, the score is even and geared says, uh, well, uh, one of these problems is ignorance. Uh, we, uh, there must be some purpose. Just watching The Rifleman the other day, and this serial killer just stabs this kid who's trying to help him in the back and steals his horse and all that. Uh, and uh, this kid was a friend of Mark McCain, The Rifleman's son, and he's saying to his father, 
I just don't get it. There doesn't seem to be any reason behind this. And uh, the rifleman says to him, well, that's the way it is, that there's some big questions that we just don't have answers to, and we have to make do with the answers we do have. Well, um, Geertz says that people are kind of impatient, uh, won't be satisfied with that, uh, or they say that and mean that there are answers we don't know now. They're not available to us, but one day they will be. When we get to heaven, we'll find out why certain things happened and that it was for the best. Um, or we'll find out that the the, the murderer uh, is getting his, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, and, uh, or, you know, we always hear in Bible discussions, people say, well, I, I got to admit, I don't understand how the heavenly voice could have said both, this is my beloved son, and you are my beloved son at the same time, but I guess when we get to heaven, there'll be this big seminar where they'll answer all these questions, and then we'll say, how could I not have seen that? That'll be clear as day then. You know, we shall know as we are known. Well, that's a classic example of what Geertz says. Uh, and then another one of these things is injustice. I've already really touched on that. When is O.J. Simpson going to answer for what he did? Well, uh, he'll go to hell or he'll be reincarnated as a, as a tapeworm or something. Uh, and uh, he'll get his. Don't worry. Uh, and uh, then there's... Uh, Oh, uh, what is it? I guess uh, injustice, ignorance, and uh, uh, suffering. Like, why does it happen? Well, you you just don't see it, but there is a reason. God had some reason for this. It's it's like uh, God is working on the tapestry, and if you've ever seen one in the works, you know that if you're looking at the back of it, all you see is a chaos of uh, threads going every which away uh, over each other and all that. This is chaos. I, I don't see any meaning or order in this. Well, that's this life. But if you go around and look at the finished product, oh, oh a beautiful picture. Uh, well, that's the side you're going to see in heaven, right? Can't see it now. And and it seems so contrived, and yet we would rather believe that there is some answer, even though we don't know what it is, than to believe, well, it's, it's just an absurd vacuum of a universe. And so I, I think Geertz may be right that that is how religion began, uh, us with our big brains needing answers and positing an, an unseen realm in which those answers uh, exist and flourish and function. Uh, I think, I suspect that's, it started as a theory, but um, things grow beyond their origins, and I think that uh, Rudolf Otto is right, and that these revelatory experiences that people have had and, and Otto collected a whole mess of them throughout history and in different religions, advanced ones, primitive ones, whatever. They all seem to have this idea, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Uh, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Moses is afraid to look at God. Um, Arjuna asks to see Krishna in his true devotion. 
divine form and, you know, the, the circuits are blown, so on and so on. Uh, uh, these people uh, are not getting it from each other. They're not copying it from each other. The stories are not literal accounts, but they're based on the kind of experiences people have had and still have. It is interesting, by the way, that there are atheists that uh, readily admit they have had such experiences, suddenly seeing that all is one. They don't really draw any metaphysical implications from it because they're not willing to say that their, their experience goes beyond experience, but they're glad they had the experience. I know one very important atheist leader who said that in earlier days when he did um, um, Eastern martial arts and stuff, he would have mystical experiences, but that didn't prove to him there was any God behind it, and he doesn't think there was, but he doesn't d deny the experiences. He doesn't, he's not apologizing for them. And uh, uh, William James talks about this in his great, great book, The variety of religious experience. Uh, okay. Uh, then, uh, mm, uh, let's see. Okay. Evan says, if something like this idea is true, do you think it is legitimate to talk about the true meaning of religious language in these terms, even if religious people, ancient or modern, would not necessarily recognize or even understand such an interpretation? That is an excellent question. I remember John Warwick Montgomery saying that uh, these linguistic analysis philosophers and these others that say what we're really saying is this. No, nah, no, we're not really saying that. We're saying that we believe there's a God who sent his son to redeem humanity and he's done it and so forth. Uh, it's You can't decode it into something else. This is what we believe. Don't tell us we don't. And yet, there are people like uh, D.Z. Phillips, uh, Dewey Zephaniah Phillips, believe it or not, uh, who wrote a whole lot of Wittgensteinian uh, language game books about religion. And uh, the, the best one for this purpose might be his book, uh, I think it's simply called Prayer, uh, and it might be on the meaning of prayer, something like that. I think it's just called prayer. Uh, and in it, he says uh, that religious people might not at first agree with the outsider's estimate of what they're saying, but that if you look closely, they are saying that. For instance, he says when people pray, uh, that uh, God will do so-and-so, uh, and, and uh, suppose it isn't uh, answered. Does that debunk the whole thing? No, because when they say they're asking that it may happen, that obviously means they know it might not. Uh, and uh, you're not commanding God. I mean, there are some weirdos... Uh, in the charismatic movement that think God is a genie and can be commanded, but generally prayer language doesn't imply that. It's kind of like what uh, the three uh, young men say to uh, 
is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor. They're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, O king, our God is able to deliver us even from this. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your idols. Ooh, how interesting. Uh, He's confident that God can deliver, but he's not God. He doesn't know the will of the Almighty. Is every uh, every prayer, by virtue of being a petition, a request, implicitly acknowledges that. Uh, Let's see... um, when uh, a, a, a more iffy example would be, oh yeah, okay, how about this? Uh, somebody uh, just misses their flight, and then they they got to wait some hours, but then they hear the flight they should have been on has crashed and killed everybody, and they say, oh, thank God, I, I missed that flight. Are they really? I mean, their literal statement seems to imply that God had the others slated for death uh, and that he didn't want this person to die, so he made sure they were in a traffic jam or something. Do you think that's what they mean? Uh, And uh, it's like what Jesus is told about these people that uh, were uh, murdered by Pilate. Uh, and he says, uh, and what do you deduce from this? Uh, you think these people were more, uh, these Galileans were worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans? It's like a rhetorical question. Of course not. Well, they don't mean that, right? And in the same way, when you say, oh, everybody died on that plane but me because I didn't get on there, thank God, you, you know, it doesn't really occur to you that God was trying to kill the rest of them. You're just basically saying, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'm, I really had a close call there. I'm thankful to be alive. Uh, and if you, you put it to somebody, are, are you saying that God wanted them dead but not you? That You know they'd say, of course not. right? Sometimes uh, you, you can reformulate it in a way that people will agree with, or, or my favorite that Phillips says. Uh, do you literally believe uh, in a glorious heaven and all of that stuff? Uh, he says, well, imagine a, a Viking on the battlefield. He gets struck down, uh, and uh, and then at some unknown time, he he comes again to his senses, and he's in a giant banqueting hall, kind of like the great uh, cafeteria in the, at West Point, if you've ever seen that, with big banners uh, hanging on the very high vaulted stone walls, and and uh, there's just all kinds of great food in front of you, and uh, serving wenches there, and can I refill that goblet of mead for you, sir? Uh, and uh, Philip says, how glorious would it have to be to confirm the belief that you're dead and in Valhalla? I mean, how terrific would the accommodations have to be? Uh, I mean, it could just be that you've recovered and you're in some big uh, dining hall, right? Um, What did you expect? Well, probably nothing could ever seem good enough. I I love this old penthouse cartoon where these two uh, guys sitting on a naugahyde couch wearing crummy sheets and uh, with a wire halo uh, uh, above their head and uh, the the plaster in the room is cracked and uh, there's a naked light bulb above them and uh, and then there's a little 
plaque tilted and the framed in, in it is the word heaven. And one of these guys says to the other, I, I don't know, I always thought it would be classier than this. Uh, well, that's Phillips's point. Suppose you turned on Pat Robertson's TV network and he says, oh, big news, Jesus returned to earth and he's standing on the Mount of Olives right now here. Let's go to our correspondent. Even if you believe in the second coming of Christ, would you simply believe this was it? Uh, you, How would you be sure? I mean, because nothing could meet your expectations because you didn't have any literalistic explanations. Uh, it was it was vague in your mind. So uh, do what is it you do believe will literally happen? Uh, nothing could uh, satisfy it. So maybe you don't really have the beliefs you think you do. Anyway. Uh, so I think, yes, you can sympathetically look at uh, people's religious beliefs, what they amount to, how they function, what people seem to be trying to say. Like uh, Jimmy Carter was uh, flabbergasted all those decades ago when he was meeting in a summit with Leonid Brezhnev about arms control. And Brezhnev said, God will not forgive us if we fail. And Carter said, wait a minute, uh, this guy's a commie. Uh, he's not supposed to believe in God. And he thought, well, maybe there's some way to get ahead here that uh, he, he is a believer. He wasn't a believer. That was simply an expression. He meant history will not forgive us. So you have to understand what is the point. Or, oh, I love this one. I'll shut up after this one. Origen said, uh, he's discussing the authorship of the Epistle of the Hebrews. Uh, and he said, you know, sooner or later we'd get to the Bible. And uh, he says, God knows who wrote this epistle. Well, he no doubt figured that God knows, and maybe he was thinking of one of these heavenly seminar things. Okay, I know you've been wondering about this, everybody. Uh, Hebrews was written by uh, Alfred E. Newman, or whatever, right? Um, that's not what he meant. He meant no one knows who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, when uh, none of us know, as Paul Simon said, the information's not available to the mortal man. His point is not that, oh boy, God knows this answer. No, he's just saying, boy, nobody knows this one. It's a kind of limit language. And uh, what do you really mean to say? Uh, the, the trivial fact that an all-knowing God must know this? No, you mean to say, don't kid yourself, nobody knows this. If an insurance uh, policy speaks of uh, your home getting crushed by a meteorite as an act of God, are they making a theological statement? No, they're just saying this is something you can't predict uh, and uh, nobody's really at fault, so we're not paying you. Um, so, you know, what does it mean? Sometimes someone with some distance from it can really catch the point and I think convincingly explain it to a... Uh, or, oh, uh, my friend Richard Abate used to say, you know, when uh, people in church are saying, oh, pray for so-and-so, because what do they really mean? Well, they mean, uh, did you hear the gossip about so-and-so? Yeah, that that's what they're saying often. You can tell. Okay, do you think there's a value in retaining the religious language to approach these ideas, a value that cannot necessarily be had through using the language of science, philosophy, or art? Yeah, I sure do. This is why Bultmann said to demythologize is not to um, reject mythology, but rather to uh, interpret it. 
is that every myth in every culture is uh, embodying the culture's self-understanding of what it's like for them in the world. Uh, and uh, Tillich says uh, you must deliteralize uh, the uh, the language of of the myth. It's like the hard shell that has to be cracked to get to the tasty nut within. You don't get rid of it uh, because you then you do the the error of uh, Kant. A Schleiermacher saw it. You say uh, or Hegel, I think they said. Um, that uh, really religious and biblical and mythical languages is just a child Sunday school version of uh, ethical instruction. That's really the point. And Schleiermacher said, uh, no, it's not. Uh, morality, ethics, that's you know non-negotiable. Those are very important. Those are necessary. But that's not what religion is really about. There's this sense there's this uh, something that that transcends that and that is piety the sense of absolute dependence and so on yeah i, I think that uh, religious language preserves that mystery because there is a mystery to it it's not all nuts and bolts um, how do you personally interpret the subject matter of the world's religions and mythologies uh, such that they don't simply appear as records of mankind's ignorance and superstition throughout the ages? Well, again, they, they presuppose, I mean, some of them are just primitive theories, right? Uh, and they're very clever, uh, but, you know, they're not really useful anymore. But others uh, are not. For instance, what is the relevance of God in Genesis 1 creating this and that and the other thing and seeing that it is very good? Uh, what What's the relevance of that? Well, that is what, uh, that implies and embodies what William James called the religion of healthy-mindedness, being well-adjusted to the world uh, and uh, living in it in a way that satisfies your various cravings and needs, physical as well as spiritual. Now, this would be against the Gnostic myth that says uh, the, the world of matter is inherently evil. It was created not by the good deity, but by the evil demiurge. Now, that is a religion that's going to result in asceticism, sour-pussed uh, world denial, uh, neinsagen, naysaying to life, as Nietzsche said. Uh, and uh, you going to be uh, stuck up, intolerant, of, or contemptuous of others, and, uh, and uh, you're going to repress uh, sexual and other desires that are going to blow up eventually, uh, and uh, it's, it's the, uh, the sick soul, as William James calls him. So I think that there is a lot of uh, importance in myth, even politically, when you say, why is it so difficult to change uh, the economic injustices or to get rid of the corruption in government and politics? Well, you can't explain that, as Peter Berger does, that we have reified the human inventions of society so that they survive the death of those who framed them and now 
are running under their own steam as new recruits to run the system have inherited the values and the rules and keep the thing going age after age. Uh, so uh, no matter who you were to convert or to assassinate, uh, it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, as depressing as it is. Well, they already kind of knew that when in the, the New Testament they talked about the principalities and powers that run the world. Like, uh, it'd be, they're fallen angels, which, however, guarantee a kind of order, even if it's a defective one, because sure be better than absolute chaos. I'd rather have the mob running the town than nobody running it. Uh, let's see, okay, uh, Evan says thanks for helping me come to grips with these subjects. Much appreciated. Well, I really appreciate your, uh, your, your very, uh, rich and searching question. It deals with a lot of important things, and, uh, and I'm glad to have had the occasion to engage with it, um. Well, that's going to be it for today. I, uh, I guess I should call this one the Evan Geek. Uh, next time, I think I'm going to be uh, doing the uh, the Chris Cheshire Geek because she has sent in a, uh, several uh, really good, long, searching questions. And I never mind that. Right? I, short or long, it's fine with me. So thank you for being with us on the Bible Geek, and be sure to be the first one on your block to get uh, Holy Fable Volume 2, The Gospels and Acts, Undistorted by Faith, on Amazon now. So, I'll uh, see you next time on the Bible Geek. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.